Here we go. This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. All right, chapter 17. And last week, just a quick little recap. What did we learn? The, the number one rule of human nature is the law of self-preservation. That is, see, that just seems to be the number one law of the land is, is the law of self-preservation. And we saw that uh, in last week's lesson so much about what that really looks like. And, and it really is so ugly. And I, I think, when are people going to see that self, self-consuming attitudes are just so ugly and there's nothing attractive about them and uh, we saw those two crooked men just you know kind of kind of um well what were they the the word I always forget that word because I want to get it out of my vocabulary and that is shrewd yeah the word shrewd I just I just don't I just think that's such a sneaky, manipulative kind of word, and I just don't think it's a Christian word. I think we're we're upfront, trustworthy, respectful, respected. Um, our integrity is in, intact, and those are words that we want to use that describe ourselves. I mean, I, that is that's my goal. I hope that's yours too. And even though maybe in the business world, when people are just all self-preserving themselves, when it's all about self-perseverance and all self-everything, then you can just see what they have to do, and they really don't care what they have to do or who they have to hurt. And see, that's when it gets so ugly. And then, and then we moved into... Um, that, that whole concept about Jesus teaching, you know, you think that you want to be able to serve two masters. You know, you think you want to be able to have it both ways, but it just, Jesus said, it doesn't work that way. So you cannot serve God and possessions and and self and and all your eggs in this earthly basket? No, it doesn't work that way. So another reminder, which he had reminded us so many times before, but he keeps bringing it in again. And then he also reminded us that the law, the Old Testament, the Old Testament is is not to be destroyed or even put away. You, no, he said, um, it is it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than it is for the law of of the Old Testament to go away. You know, Jesus fulfilled a lot of the Old Testament. You bet he did. But there are much, there are many and much that he says does not change. And there are certain instructions, there's commandments that do not change. So, um, he really made that clear about that. You know, the Ten Commandments, we so still need them. And it's so important that we stay within the perimeter of the Ten Commandments. And and then there's certain other instructions that he says, no, no, don't think that the Old Testament is obsolete. Not a bit. And then, of course, he, he finalized that chapter with, and, and one thing that does not change is the fact that heaven is a real place and hell is a real place. And he made it so descriptive with the rich man and Lazarus. You know, how, how this rich man had everything. He had luxury. He had everything that he 
possibly could want. And he's so used to having people do for him. And and he didn't even care that there was this Lazarus, there's this beggar with sores all of his body. And remember, Jesus made it so descriptive that even dogs licked those sores. But he wanted to make sure we saw the patheticness of this man. And the rich man could have cared less. And then when both men died, how Lazarus had nothing that this world had to offer, but he had everything for for Abraham to come and take him, and then for the rich man to then now be in hell. It says he's in hell, and and he he says, send Lazarus, send Lazarus to tell my brothers. I mean, he's still bossing, thinking that, yeah, just send him, you know, he, he can do that, and why Jesus really made it clear in that about um, taking a look at uh, that reality. Take a look at that reality and, you know, what we are doing with our lives. You know, it's one of two things. You're either living for him or you're living for yourself. And there's going to be either consequences or there's going to be blessings. And he just wants us to get that simple message. And he puts it in such descriptive form. And just to make sure we know that these aren't fairy tales. I mean, this... This is teaching that he wants you and I to know. So now we move into the 17th chapter, and it's really interesting, I have to say, that he's talking to the disciples, and then he will talk to the apostles. Now, they're the same But he starts with the disciples, because when you're a disciple, that means you're a learner. You are learning. He has got two very important things he wants these disciples to learn, so that in verse 5, he calls them apostles, because now he's going to send them out. But you can't send out someone if they haven't learned what you want them to learn. You can't expect them to be sent out to teach if they haven't learned it themselves. So these two very important sections, he says, I want you disciples to know things that cause people to sin are bound to come. I'm so glad he understands that, you know, sin is all around us. Temptation is everywhere. And he knows our frame. So he knows. So he said things that cause people to sin are bound to come. I mean, it's just there. But woe to that person through whom they come. Woe. Big words, big language again. Whenever Jesus uses the word woe, it's like a great big warning sign he puts in front of us. He says, I want to warn you, if you don't think this is a big deal to me, you are wrong. If you do not realize that sometimes in your life or your lifestyle, people are watching and it could be detrimental to their either salvation or their walk with the Lord. You know, he said, yeah, you're going to, sin is going to be everywhere, but you better take a look at your life and woe to, to anyone whose sin comes through you or, the, or whatever and goes to another person. You look at, he says, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. 
So again, very tough language. I mean, he says, if you, if your life is causing someone else to sin, he said, it'd be better for you. And he uses the description, this millstone, our two great big cement circle stones that grind grain. And they're heavy. And I mean, he said they would definitely, the people, you know, the disciples would definitely understand what they were. And in other words, if they were hung around, if they were tied around your neck and you got thrown into a sea, you're not going, you're not coming back up. There's no way you're coming back up. So he said, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck than for, for one of these little ones to sin because of your life. And, you know, Paul talks about that in Romans 14. You know, what, what might not be a big deal to you or what might not seem like, you know, it's not a problem to you. It's certainly not a sin to you. But I think we totally underestimate that wherever we go, whatever we're doing, when you have labeled yourself a Christian or you say, I go to such and such church, you are automatically put in this category that we're expected to live a different way, and we're supposed to. So even the person that probably doesn't even understand, I think they sometimes understand better that we're supposed to be different than what we do. We are a different kind of person now because we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ and and. If we cause, if someone else has a problem with what maybe we don't, shouldn't we care enough? Shouldn't we be selfless instead of selfish? Should we consider that, you know, wonder if somebody is just, you know, kind of on the fence and they don't quite know, because little ones doesn't necessarily just mean little children. It certainly can and they're very impressionable, and it is very important that we do um, think about little ones because we all have had mentors, haven't we? I mean, I think of two Sunday school teachers. When I was five years old, I still remember their names. I could still picture them. Aunt Lucille and Aunt Gert, they, they were my Sunday school teachers, and I just looked up to them. I thought they were the most beautiful ladies in the world, and they were just two simple old ladies, but I just adored them, and they taught me. They really introduced me to Jesus, and you know, and then I moved on to Aunt Bertha, which is a whole nother story. But my two Sunday school teachers, when I was five years old, so precious. In in little ones do look to older, and they mentor. I mean, they look to them as their mentors. And so, yes, Jesus does say that as we grow older, we will have little ones looking at us. And the ones who are real close with you, like if it's your children or grandchildren, I don't care how old our children get, you know, we're still supposed to be mentoring them. We're still supposed to be ahead of them spiritually because we're that much older than them. The job is never done. And so what do they see in our lives? And then, that, like I was saying, you know, little ones also mean those who maybe are... are considering maybe they have heard the gospel and they're sitting on the fence wondering what to do. And, and maybe in their mind, and you have 
made yourself known as a Christian, and and you haven't you haven't you know shirked away from that, admitting and saying that. But then they watch our walk, and they they get confused. And I think that when Jesus said this, he's saying, you know, sometimes what you do and how you live and how you talk and how you look even, it could, make, it could mean somebody's deciding whether which side of that fence I'm going to go. Is this something I want or is this something that, boy, I didn't expect that. I don't want any part of that. So I think in this verse, Jesus just saying to his disciples, would you just stop and look and realize, you know, sometimes we think no one's watching. Who would be watching us? And they don't even have to know us. But sometimes they can just spot you in, in the way you handle yourself with, a, with a, another person person or maybe a cashier or um, maybe in a, a troubled situation, you know, in, in you're in a store and, and um, you know, people are just plain watching your and my behavior. And, and how are we acting? Do we represent Jesus well? Because we do. We wear his name and Jesus, with his disciples, he says, your disciples, I want you to learn this because when I send you out, I want you to know that, that you're going to go into all these towns and people are going to be watching and you're going to be professing Christ. You're going to be presenting the gospel. Then, then I want you to be acting like it. And it is very important because look in verse 3. Look what he says. So watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Very important, Jesus says, I want to make sure that when people watch you, they're watching me. So, then he moves on with another important thing. He says, if your brother sins, if your brother sins, now brother, that means, you know, you're not talking about, you know, your people without Christ. <laughs> We're talking about the family, or the family. That's why he calls them when your brother sins. This is part of the family. Because, see, when a, a non-believer sins, I mean, the, they don't have a choice in the matter. I mean, that's just what they do. Once you accept Christ, then when it comes to sin, you got a choice. Which way are you going to go? And so, if your brother sins... Then what does he tell you to do? What does he tell me? You first rebuke them. And oh, man, does that open a can of worms, doesn't it? Because rebuke right away, that sounds so tough. And, and you think, oh, I don't think I want that job. But yet, your brother, I mean, obviously, he's one of the family. And once they veered off course, someone needs to go and, and tell them but then I think we've got to take a look at two words. Whenever you rebuke, when you've got to confront somebody, you have to take a look at yourself first and say, now, how am I going to handle this? Am I going to be criticizing or am I going to be correcting? And when we criticize when we've got the attitude of criticism, well, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to tell them where they're going wrong. And I'm going to just, and then that tough word rebuke seems to take over. But, 
But criticism is when you have your best interest in mind. You're going after them because thank goodness you're not as bad as they are. And, and, um, and maybe through this criticism, they get put down and they look at you like, oh, wow, you know, kind of makes you elevated. See, when you come after a brother, it's because you love them. And you care about what's happening and you know that road of sin and you know how slippery it gets and it just takes you farther and farther away. And because you care, because you love them, you come at them with correcting. Now, don't ever, no matter matter what, very few are going to say, oh, thanks a lot. You know, it's not going to be something that they're going to enjoy hearing from you. But even if... It's, it's like what Paul says in Ephesians. You know, he says, speak the truth in love. And there are ways you can do it. When you want to correct someone, you speak the truth, but you do it in love. And, and another thing I was learning this week about, if you really do care and you really do love them, you don't keep it to yourself and harbor it. And you don't run to other people and talk about it. When you really love and care for somebody who has sinned and has gone off the track, you go to them directly and you speak the truth in love. And then what they do with it is up to them. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, you rebuke them and if he does, if he does come to his senses, you know, and realizes through your words and through the Holy Spirit, like, oh, I didn't even realize it. I didn't see how far off I, I've gone. And, and he repents. Jesus makes it very clear. There are no questions about if you forgive him or not. You do. If he repents, you forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, now we know the word seven, the number seven is one that Jesus will use. Like, I don't care how many times they sin, if they repent, it's so easy for you to either be judgmental and say, you aren't either sorry. You just think you can sin and just say the words and no, that's not up to you. If they come to you and repent, you must forgive. Now, an unforgiving spirit is is similar to guilt in my book. I mean, as far as, I think guilt and an unforgiving spirit weigh the same. They just, they just, they're so heavy on your back and you carry it with you. And even though sometimes we talk ourselves into justifying, I'm not going to forgive them. After all, they've got to learn. In our minds, we have developed this definition that in a for- forgiveness means that they're going to get away with it and that they're not even responsible for their actions, that this is just going to be sloughed away. And so we get into that mental attitude, like, I just can't let them get away with this. And especially again and again, and and we always call it tough love. I'm going to administer tough love. Jesus just says, I want you to forgive. 
And any time that we don't want to forgive, he says, how do you then? How do you forgive when you don't want to, when you just think it's just not right? And what is forgiveness, even though you don't think it's right, that you don't have to after all? Forgiveness is when you just release it. You just release it. Because, you know, there was one word in here that, that made me think. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, it's so easy to look at that and say, well, if he doesn't repent, then I don't have to forgive him. And then made me go on kind of think about how does that work with Jesus? Because in the salvation process, you confess, you repent, and then he forgives. And we have to know there will be no forgiveness unless we repent. So then we think, all right, then, how about, doesn't that work the same here? That if, if someone does not repent, I don't have to forgive them? And see, that's where it gets sticky because maybe they haven't repented because maybe they don't care. Maybe they don't want to. Maybe they don't even realize what they've done. But they don't repent. Then what do you do with it? And it still weighs a ton. And an unforgiving spirit, no matter whether they repent or not, you're carrying it. It will turn into a bitterness. It will turn into, eventually, into a hatred. And then pretty soon, it's like it kills the relationship. And there you sit. An unforgiving spirit just keeps getting worse and worse. When you have a chance, you've got a choice to be able to get rid of that. And that, that means that even if they haven't repented, I can release it to the Lord. I can, I can just say, Lord, now I'm going to let it go to you because I want to continue moving forward. I want to be free of this heavy shackle because it is weighing on me and I want it gone. And I am just going to forgive and I'm going to release it to you. See, you're not letting them get away with it. You're not, not allowing them to be responsible for their actions. You're just releasing it to the Lord, who, believe it or not, has watched this whole thing, knows every detail, and knows how to handle it perfectly in just the right way at just the right time. And in the meantime, you and I are going on living instead of letting this monkey on our back just weigh us down. So Jesus is saying, okay, fellas, I want you to know how important your life is and how, how important your lifestyle is because people are watching and you re represent me, you wear my name. So take and watch out for your life. And then he moves into this and he says, you know, and I want you to be forgiving people. I want you to make sure that you, if, if your brother is wronged, you are, is, is following a sinful path, that, that yes, you go to him instead of talking to others about it or keeping it, holding it in and turn it into a grudge that then turns into bitterness. And he said, no, just forgive and release it to me and I'll take care of it in my way, in my time. And you can go on. Two very good lessons but both very difficult. In fact, 
that whole thing with people watching me. You mean 24-7? I have to be careful about my life because who knows who's watching? I mean, one time years ago, Tom and I, we, we went on a cruise. Oh, just loved it. And we went on a cruise. And, and Tom says, you know, look, at I think there's three, four, or 5,000 people here. So nobody knows us. Not that we would do anything differently, but it was just a funny feeling. Nobody knows us. So here we are thinking we got a week of nobody watching us or looking at us or pointing fingers at us or whispering behind our... I mean, we, we've seen it all, believe me. So here, nobody knows us. And all of a sudden, it's about second or third day, all of a sudden, this couple just comes, hey, Linnell and Tom, we're so-and-so from Cedar Grove, Wisconsin. And it doesn't get any more conservative Dutch. It's Cedar Grove, Wisconsin. And I'm thinking, oh, my word, if anybody was going to be on that cruise ship watching us, it would be that couple. And it you don't again that we wouldn't we don't we didn't care if they watched us every minute of every day that wasn't it but it, to us it just proved you really can't go anywhere nowadays and even if somebody doesn't know you but they're watching your actions they're watching you maybe they even say look at the look at that couple isn't that just beautiful the way they act or the way they look or or you know you can just see their love or you can see them pray or you could our our testimony is even among strangers. But you think, okay, that's pressure, though. That's a lot of pressure. And Jesus is saying, you bet it is. It is pressure, you know. And, and then even the, the, the next one about forgiving. Well, that's hard. That's really hard. So you've got a, a lot of pressure, and, and, this, and you've given me a lot, lot of of a hard job to think about here. So, look at verse 5. The apostles, see, now they're called apostles. And so Jesus is saying, all right, I've taught you these two principles about, about sin and about forgiveness. And the, the response is the, the apostles now are saying, increase our faith. I mean, if, if we're going to be under that kind of pressure and you're expecting us to be forgiving... All the time, no matter what they say or do, no matter how many times, then you better increase our faith. And the way Jesus taught after that, I thought was so amazing because that would have been, I would, would think that would have been a, uh, something I would have said, well, then please increase my faith. I obviously need more faith. And he is saying, no, it's not the amount of faith that you need. It is, what is your faith? Who is your faith? You know, you have to take a look at what are you trusting? What do you, what, what are you trusting? Is it, is it Jesus or is it yourself? And if it's Jesus, he says, all you need is a little mustard seed of faith. And then, look at what you, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, what a visual. I mean, Jesus is saying, a little mustard seed of faith, all you need is that mustard seed of faith to uproot a mulberry tree and then watch it go to the sea and get replanted. Well, 
that's just impossible. And that's his whole point, because so often that's what we think. It's impossible for me to live my life every 24-7. I just can't possibly live my life like that. It's impossible. It's impossible to forgive. You have no idea what they do to me continuously. Or you don't know what they've said. You don't know how they broke my heart. It's impossible. I cannot go on. And we've said the words, it's impossible. And so Jesus put that example in there. I'll show you. I'll show you. A little mustard seed of faith, but put into me. You're trusting me. You're putting a little mustard seed of faith in an almighty God. I'm telling you, you can do the impossible. So what an eye-opener. For me, it was such an eye-opener. It made me, it helped me to understand now really what a mustard seed of faith is really all about. It's just a teeny little piece of faith, but put into an almighty God, a little bit of trust, put into an almighty God, and he enables us to do immeasurable, immeasurably more than we could ever think we could do. And then he moves on to verse 7. Suppose one of you had a servant, a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. So now we're talking about the word serve, servant. I love the way Paul in his letters, so many of his letters, he would introduce himself by saying, I, Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus. And that was such a radical change. You talk about the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. To take Paul, who was probably, you know, the top of the religious line. He, was, he had worked himself all the way up to the top of the ladder of the, of the Sanhedrin, of the Pharisees. And he was very intellectual and carried himself well and... He had so many credentials that once he met Jesus, though, he said, I consider oh, nothing compared to what I know now. Paul t- took all of his fancy sermons, all of his eloquent ways of saying things, and I think he dumped them all and said, now I'm going to preach Jesus and him crucified. That's the message I'm not ever going to get away from. And Paul went from this kind of person to now saying, I, Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus. He loved that title. And so now now Jesus says, suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after sheep. This servant worked hard. Whether he was in the field with the sheep or plowing, he worked a full hard day. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? You know, now Jesus is saying, I got, I got to have you take a look at yourself and see how you are willing to serve. And why are you serving? 
and take a look at your motive of why you're serving. I mean, you know, you first look at this guy, the owner of this servant, and and you must say, well, man, he's worked all day. Now, now you expect him to cook you a meal and just keep serving you, and you don't say a word of thanks to him at all. You know, the only way that I could really explain this from my point of view was to kind of think about um, a mom, a mother, probably her servant, her service never ends. And she can work all day and she comes home and she's got to work some more. And I don't think that too many moms get a whole lot of thanks or I am sure that a mother has a tendency to say, you know what, they don't appreciate a thing I'm doing for them. And there's that feeling of, what in the world am I working so hard for? They don't appreciate it. They don't thank you. I mean, and it's just nonstop. It just never ends. And then all of a sudden, you come to your senses and you realize what a privilege this is. You know, what a privilege. What a privilege it is to be able to serve them. And why are you doing it? Because you love them so much. And so when you're looking at this, Jesus says, I just want you to know. And I think that's why Bill Gaither wrote the song. And, you know, when he started, he, he started with a verse. And, and he said, you know, since I started for the kingdom and others, when, when Jesus became real to me and my spiritual life just kind of took off since I started for the kingdom, since my life, he controls. I, I let go. I released my life to him, and he's in control. Since I gave my heart to Jesus, the longer I serve him, the sweeter it grows. And then you get to the chorus, that the more that I love him, the more love he bestows. I mean, he is trying to say to you and I that, this service thing, this being a servant for the Lord Jesus. And, and then Paul so often talks about, and when you are working for someone else, you're doing it as unto the Lord. And watch what happens when all of a sudden your eyes get back to you, then all of a sudden you're not appreciated. Oh, you're not being thanked. And then it turns ugly again. And Jesus is trying to so, so beautifully say, I know that humanly you just think, well, I worked this much in today. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have to keep doing it. I can put my feet up. I mean, service, though, doesn't have to mean that you're doing something all the time, gone all the time, serving on every committee. It doesn't mean that. What I mean, I think of my grandpa. I think, you know, for years and years, that old man, well, I wasn't always old, but I mean, until he was 80, this Dutch guy, it was, he could do anything. He was such a strong old buck. At 80 years old, he's still up on the roof taking snow off. I mean, yes, he was given great health and, and had many good things qualities that way. But let's face it, the body started deteriorating and he's in his mid-90s now. And he obviously can't do anything that he used to. He's in a special home in Granville. And 
I went there on that particular day, and and he was just kind of downcast. It was there wasn't that sparkle in those blue eyes of his, and I kind of had a hunch, and I really think it was the Holy Spirit saying, "Well, now just ask him." So I asked him, I said, Grandpa, do you ever pray for me? Do you ever pray for Tom and I? I mean, you know, you know we're on the road and you know that, um, you know our circumstances. Do, do you ever pray for us? And he looked at me like, I, I, like, of course I do. I mean, he says, I pray for you every day. He says, sometimes I know, exa- <clears throat> I know exactly where you are. And I know exactly what you're doing, and I pray for that. But even if I don't, then I pray that whatever you need, I say, Lord, supply what they need today. And I looked at him, I said, do you have any idea? Because he he looked at me like, you know, that's nothing. But I had to remind him, the Lord had me remind him, do you realize what that means for me? That sometimes, you know, Tom and I would be out there with no cell phone, no GPS. I mean, we got ourselves in plenty of pickles. And I'm thinking, it was so good to know that I had a grandpa that was praying for whatever they need. He had no idea it would be lost in the middle of nowhere. So sometimes we, we have to have our, servant, our service change according to our age and abilities and all that. But Jesus is saying, there's always something. There'll always be something. In fact, you don't even have to be looking for it because I'll show it to you. There'll be plenty of needs. And what a privilege. Like the song kept saying, the longer I serve him, the more that it keep doing it. And then, like Jesus said, would he... Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told? Jesus is saying, you don't need thanks. You don't need thanks because if you're trying to compare thanks, compared to what I did for you, there isn't any amount of stuff you do that's going to add up to what I did for you. So when you think you need thanks, you just better think of, you better think about what I did to you. You know, there's so many times that we need the cross to go back to, you know, yes, for our ultimate salvation, but I mean, like even for, how do I forgive this person? How do I do that? Well, I go to the cross and it reminds me of how much he forgives me. And aren't I so thankful that he doesn't say, well, you filled your quota, no more. So that, that, gets me in my proper perspective. And the same thing with here, with serving. You know, unappreciated, no thank yous. Well, you know, go to the cross and you realize you don't really need to be thanked. Not only because there's no way that you could possibly pay him back, but you got work to do. You are not done. I don't care how many hours you serve. There's still more to do for him. As long as we have breath, you'll see to it. We have something to be able to serve him with it's the least we can do. And then this whole thankful thing. Matthew Henry, you know, the commentator, he really helped me to see this this week. He helped me to see, and this is why it moves right into this next section about the thanks. And and he, and. In this particular section, we're seeing that when it comes to serving the Lord, we don't need a thank you. But the thing is, if you really think about it, we don't need a thank you, 
though we're going to get one. He's, he, eventually, he's going to give us a thank you. Did you ever think about that? Someday when we meet him face to face, and if we have served him, we have already learned that he won't be ashamed of us than before his father. But we also know that he will say things to us. I mean, maybe, maybe the sweet smile on his face when he calls us by name. I mean, that's going to be thankful enough. Or, or wonder if he says to you and me, well done, I gave you a tough job. I called you to a service that was not easy. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. What, what a reward. So it just kind of helps us put in perspective that whole thing about thankful. But then he moves into now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And he was going into a village. Ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. So now we're going to talk about thankfulness in a, in a little different way. Now we've got 10 lepers who, you know, it doesn't matter whether one's a Samaritan, whether the rest are Jews, we really don't know what bound these men together was leprosy. Isn't that sad? Sometimes it takes a suffering for us to let walls go down. I mean, you know, I think we all were a part of that uh, football player that, you know, needed CPR on the football field. And, you know, something how all of a sudden, you know, you have two teams that were just bashing each other's heads together, you know. All of a sudden, there they are on their knees praying together. Or, you know, you, you have all these, you know, differences of color and culture and division and all these things, and yet something suffering or tragic or devastating happens, and it will bring people together, and all of a sudden, where's the division? You come together in one accord, and this is what happened with these 10 lepers. They had to live separate from everybody else, but then they had each other. They had that in common. And together they shouted with a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when, when he saw them, he said, when Jesus saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. Go show yourself to the priest. And now with our previous study with a leper, it was one leper, and he's the one that Jesus came and touched and said to him, um, you know, because this leper so beautifully said, if you are willing, I know you can, but if you're willing, will you heal me? And Jesus healed him right on the spot. And then he said, now go to the priest and, you know, follow Jewish protocol and that. But this is different. These were 10 men. And Jesus said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. He didn't say anything about, and then you will be healed. I mean, it says that in black. It says that, and as they went, they were cleansed. But he made them start their walk. So he just said, you go. So did they trust him enough? Did they, did they believe enough? Now, in, in my book, I think it took 
this one to say, come on, fellas, let's just move. Let's believe him. I think it took this guy because, you know, if they really had a heart for the Lord, if they really truly believed, then all 10 of them would have come back. If they all really had understood what Jesus had done for them and they were overcome with gratitude and thankfulness, they all would have been back. So however it went, they did start on their way and they all 10 were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, I mean, he just turned right around. Now, obviously, they all, after they would go to the priest, they all wanted to get home. They all couldn't wait to get home. This, this one that turned around, I mean, he, he had to stop. And instead of going home and going with the other guys and then being set free to do what they wanted, when they wanted, and how they wanted, he took the time, made the effort to come back. He came back and he was praising God loudly. He didn't even care what it sounded like. I bet Jesus had this little smirk on his face when all of a sudden in the distance he, he heard this, this man just loudly praising him. What a sound that must have been. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked him and he was the Samaritan. Hmm. He was the Samaritan. And Jesus asked, we're not all 10. <laughs> you know, it's just like, uh, just checking. Uh, all 10 were healed, right? <laughs> and then he asked another question. Then where are the other nine? Where are the other nine? And all of a sudden, it dawned on me. I thought, he notices he notices when we thank him. He notices when we're grateful. And he loves it. And when he does for us, he is expecting us to be thankful. When he even says no to us, he's expecting us to be thankful. Even when our situations and circumstances are not at all what we want, he's expecting us to be thankful and grateful to him. And the reason I know that for a fact is because Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, he says, in every situation, in every situation, whatever, Ever the circumstance, see, that leaves no wiggle room. That leaves no room for, yeah, but except for, no, in every situation, whatever the circumstance, be thankful continually. Not just a quick, oh, thank you. No, and you're not thankful for the, the circumstance or the situation, the suffering, the difficult time, the trial. You're not thankful for it. You're thankful for him because you know he is up to something and he will never leave you through it. He'll walk every step with you. That you won't go through this circumstance alone. It says, in every situation, whatever the circumstance, be thankful and continually given thanks to God for this is the will of God for you. This is what he's got planned for you. All of a sudden, 
dawns on me. Yeah, he he can he notices if I just took that for granted and I I didn't thank him and it's a little different. It's it's like he says, I don't want you to expect. I want you to do for me what needs to be done and you do it for as long as it takes and you do even if no one else appreciates it or thanks you for it, that's beside the point because you're doing it for me. But now he kind of turns it and says, but I want you to know, I love it when you thank me. I love it when, when you show me you're grateful for the way that I, I am teaching you and that I am walking with you every step of the way. Not thankful for the situation, but you're thankful in it because you know he's there. And like I said, Matthew Henry, he kind of helped me to see that this week. He, he said, you know, so often when things happen to us, we get so, again, self-consumed with that, the problem that the last thing we ever think about is thanking the Lord. I mean, well, we just need to know how to get through this. We forget that all we need to do is plug in to him. You know, so often we... When we say we need to cling to the Lord, you know, I even use that. I even cling to the Lord. The more I know him, the more I love him, the more I'm finding out I have to cling to him harder. And a lot of times it looks like I'm just clinging to just air. But I know I am clinging to him. And what a difference that makes when you are in power, when you are clinging to him. And and I think that when you're thankful and you're grateful because I believe he's real. When I go like this, when I'm clinging to him, I know he's real. I know he's right there. I'm thankful that I don't have to do this alone. Matthew Henry, he he got robbed one day. He got robbed and and he, he they took his wallet and I mean it's devastating. There's no getting around it. And he was in the middle of of preparing a sermon in this text of 1 Thessalonians about being thankful always. You know, in every circumstance, being thankful. And he, he would write in his diary every night. And so he thought, now how can I be thankful? And as he sat there and as he pondered on it, he started writing, and this is what he wrote. He had never been robbed before. All of a sudden, he looked at that. I'm this old, and I've never been robbed before. I'm thankful I never was robbed before this. And then the second one was, even though they took his wallet, they didn't take my life. You know, what a difference when you look at that. All of a sudden, you know, this, this wallet doesn't seem so bad. He didn't take my life. I'm thankful he didn't take my life. And then the third one was, even though he took it all, it wasn't much. And so, in other words, he's saying, you know, it could have been so. I mean, I could have, I could have just cashed my check. I could have, you know, I could have had all the, all the stuff in there. And you know, so even though he took it all, it wasn't much. And then this last one is the one that really got me. I wasn't the one that was doing the robbing. And what a, what a beautiful thought that is. Instead of, again, so self-consumed about what happened to you, you're thinking, you know what? I'm so thankful that, that my heart isn't like that. 
that I know right from wrong and that I don't want to do that to someone else. And, you know, all that, I'm thankful because other than the grace of God, it could have been me. So, see, there's always something to be thankful for when it comes to thanking him. But when it comes to needing human thanks, no, you're doing it for him and he's worthy because there's a lot of work to do and there's no way we could ever repay him. But it sure is, it is exciting to be able to at least try to do something for him. So two, two different ways of thanking. And then, and then he says to this, this one that came back, he says, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. You know, when you are willing to see him through every situation and whatever circumstance, and you're willing to thank him and be grateful that, that he will be there with you, and he's got a purpose for everything that, that happens. And he can make good out of anything and everything. If we really truly believe that. And to think that he can use us in this circumstance to be a testimony to someone else. If we really kind of filter in on those things. We win. Because this is what he says to this man. Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. It's like this, this man got a double blessing. He got physically healed. But when you have Jesus say your faith, your faith has made you well. He's talking about, I mean, he's already well physically. But now when Jesus said your faith has made you well, that means he is now well on the inside You've sung the song, I've sung the song. When we know all is well with our soul. I mean, there, there is something that is like bonus. I'm, I'm picturing these other nine. Oh, they've been to the priest. They're home now. They're just tooting around. They're all healed. And I'm sure that's wonderful. I'm sure it is. But I'm thinking, you know, yeah, you're physically healed, but you're still inside sick. And this man, this man is now physically healed and he is more importantly inside well. This man, yes, he is outside healed, but oh, so much more importantly, inside well. And then once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. These Pharisees, I mean, they are continuously pick, pick, and they're trying to cause some compulsion. And here, I think they're I think this is toward the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. And they're kind of saying, you know, we have heard you talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And see, they're only looking through because they don't they don't have they don't have Jesus within them, so they don't have spiritual eyes and ears. They don't have the, the sight from their heart. They don't have the hearing from their heart. So they're just working with physical eyes and ears. And so when Jesus is talking kingdom of God, kingdom of God, they're saying, you know what? Either build the thing or shut up and stop saying you're the Messiah. 
You know, it's either put up or shut up. And Jesus comes back, and boy, does he have the perfect answer, the kingdom of God. And we referred to this when we were discussing the kingdom of God before. And I, and I brought you to Luke 17, because you know, when Jesus says it, the kingdom of God, what, it, what is the kingdom of God? It's, it's that relationship that we have that once you've been to the cross, you have within you. No one can take it from you. And so he says, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor, nor will people say, oh, the, here it is, there it is. You know, you can't just point to it. It's not, not a building made with hands. Because the kingdom of God is within you. And then, Verse 22, then he said to his disciples, it's like, I can almost picture him. You know what? You don't even want to understand that. You don't even try. In, in all of these chapters, there's been a time he's tried every, every way possible. And so he said his piece. He said, you don't understand. The kingdom of God isn't something you're just seeing with physical eyes and ears. And the kingdom of God is something you see with spiritual eyes and ears. Then he said to his disciples, he turned to them. He thought, you know what? They don't get it anyway. So, you know, I'm just going to turn to you guys. And he said, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. It's kind of like, a, I'm going to, i got to prepare you. I've got to keep telling you this, that, you know, we've been together for three years, and we've been tight, and, you know, there's been very little time we haven't been together. And, you know, I think they're just so used to, and they're so dependent on him. And, and he's thinking, you know, i got to get these guys ready I've got to get them to understand that I'm not going to be in this form the way they are used to seeing me. So when he says, you know, when you will long, they will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but they won't. And they're going to have to realize he is not going to walk with them anymore. It's going to be three years, and then he is going back to heaven, and he's saying to them, you're not going to have me. So one of two things is going to have to happen to you. I mean, I know I was reading between the lines here, but I thought, you know, he was making a point. You know, there's a day coming when I'm not going to be able to be walking with you, and you're not going to be able to just physically lean on me. And depend on me, you're the one that's going to be going out there. And, and I'm giving you the power and the authority, and I will be giving you my spirit, and that is what you will be going out there. And if you stick to that, you will have exactly what you need. But he's saying, if you long for me, if you, if you start thinking, oh, I just, I just so wish that he was here, and I can't do it without him. And you know what happens when we, we get into that state? Oh, I can't do it. I can't. This is just too hard. I can't do it. I don't have what it takes. So 
you know, when Jesus is saying this, you can go one of two ways. You can grab my power that what I've given you and you can take my spirit and believe that, that the spirit is working and he will do it the impossible. He'll take that mulberry tree and replant it. He will do what you think isn't possible. Or you can, you can get weak in your, in your self-indulgence thing, and I just can't do it. It's just too hard. Life's just too hard. I can't do it. And then men will tell you. Then men are going to start coming around, and they're going to start telling you things like, oh, here he is. There he is. And if you're in a weak state, I'll tell you, these kinds of false teachers, they are so convincing. And if you are not on top of it, if you aren't clinging, I'll tell you, they, they get you so worked up. And I think we're seeing today, I know I'm stepping out on a ledge, but, but I'm telling you, I've just heard so many conspiracy theories, even of so-called Christians they're depending on what men are saying. They're saying, and this is what's going to happen on such a day. And they're depending on the false teachers instead of going to God's word and clinging to what God says and trusting that God's got it planned just exactly the way he's going to say it. But unfortunately, weak Christians are buying into the false teaching, just like Jesus said, and just like Paul said, they're going to want to hear what their itching ears want to hear. And when you're weak, when you let yourself get weak thinking you can't do it because you are not, you are not activating the power that's within you, then you're going to believe that. You're going to believe it. It just crushes my soul when I, when I hear what people are saying instead of going to the word. Because look, at this. I love this next verse. He said, men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. Don't go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. He's saying, let me just tell you, if you're wondering if I'm here or there, let me just reinforced. You are not going to miss it. Let me describe it to you. It will be, he said, like lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other end. That means everybody in every part of the world are going to know when Jesus is coming back. You will not have to second guess. You won't have to have a man tell you, oh, here it is. There it is. There he is. No, you're going to see me. And that just empowers us. Let's listen to what Jesus tells us it's going to be like. Let's just not listen to false teachers, men. Let's not ever be in such a weak state that we're willing to believe men rather than God's word. But then in verse 25, he says, but before you can experience that, before you can experience the lightning and the flashing from one, one end of the sky to the other end of the sky, and it's the second coming of Christ. I have to fulfill my mission. When he makes that, he said, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Before, before you can experience all what Jesus says is going to happen, 
You have to experience the cross. See, this is personal. If you really want to be a part of all that he says is going to happen, and like the second coming and, and all that, you're going to be a part of that, well, then you've got to take that walk to the cross first. I mean, that's the way he puts it. But first, before you can experience all what he has promised that he has for us, you've got to take that walk first. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That's just the way his terms are. This is the way it works, just as it was. Now, in the next couple verses, he's going to give us two examples. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. And they're going to they're gonna understand this because these are two stories everybody knew. And he said, when the Son of Man comes back, it's going to be just like, remember when you heard the story about Noah? People were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. I mean, no one gave this guy one bit of time. They thought he was a kook until the rain started. Until that door shut and the rain started, then all of a sudden, no, it's not such a kook. Too late. Too late. But, in the, but beforehand, what were they doing? It all consumed for me. It was all about me. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. See, that's the thing about the Old Testament. That's, that's why it gets a bad rap. I think I've said this before. Old Testament gets a bad rap because, see, that in the Old Testament, God wanted to show you and I what he thought of sin and how he's going to make sure he takes care of it, every last little bit of it. That's why the first part of this chapter is so important to him. Like, don't you dare be the one responsible for causing someone to sin. I want you to know how serious it takes sin. I don't want one of my kids causing someone else to stumble. So then he moves on. He says, it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planning, and building. But the day Lot left, Sodom, fire, and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them. See, God made sure in the Old Testament that judgment happened this is what happened. This is what happens if you obey me, and this is what happens if you don't obey me. He made it very clear. That's why you know so many think the Old Testament is is so rough and hard and morbid and killing and all that. But I'm here to tell you, yeah, we live in this day and age, the day of grace. In the age of grace, it's not that any sin is being shoved under the rug. It's just because he is saying. I am giving you time, but I have got this all, I've I've got the checklist all right here. Every sin will be handled. But because you live in the age of grace, I'm, I'm patiently, undeserved favor, giving you time to get things straight. But the day is coming, though, that, and we know it is, it's called on that day, every Every sin will be dealt with. Every sin will be dealt with, whether it's under the blood of Jesus or whether it's face to face with him in judgment. And then it's too late. Again, he tells us the day will come, that it will be too late. And it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 31, on that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. 
Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. I never totally understood those words before until verse 32, because it's a verse all in itself. Jesus says this, remember Lot's wife. That's one verse, remember Lot's wife. He says, I want to make sure you remember that story. I mean, she had to be dragged out. And even though, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah was going up in a puff of smoke, she still longed for that city. That one glance back at a perishing world. That's what the warning is. Remember Lot's wife. You still long for a perishing world. We got to work on your heart. You are still longing. You're still holding on too tight to this. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Again, not hard to understand. He says, I'm just going to lay it out there for you. All you want is for self-satisfaction and all you want is to attain your goals here and it's all about you and all of that, then, then all right then, when you're into, in my presence, then I'm sorry, but this is the way it is. I, told, I taught you, I, I taught you so many different ways. I told you in more ways than I can count. This is what happens. Hope you had a good time, but it's over and it's too late. But if you... If you want to lose your life here, if you want to lose your life here, real life will be preserved. The kind of life that lasts forever. The kind of life that's full and satisfied and abundant and complete. So again, he throws it in our court. Okay, it's up to you. Just remember Lot's wife. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, and the other left. You know, remember that teaching that we had weeks ago about Jesus that I've come not to bring peace to the world? And I think we were jolted by that, like thinking, well, yes, you did. You, come, you came to bring peace to the world. No, he came to bring peace to each and every one of us individually through him. But he didn't come to bring peace to the world. No, he came to divide the world. He, he knew that this gospel message was going to be received by some and going to be rejected by some. And it was their call. He forces it on no one. He's going to make sure everybody hears and has the opportunity. And then he says, I've come to divide because I know not everybody is going to receive it. So Jesus did come to bring the gospel and it is offered to every one of us. But he says, I just, maybe, maybe if I put it this way, there's going to be two in the bed and one will be taken, the other one left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken and the other left. I gave them plenty of chances. They, they sure knew. I didn't, I didn't pull the wool over their eyes. It was very, it was very understandable. I only gave them two choices going to do it my way or are you going to do it your own way? This is what happens if you do it my way and this is what happens. 
if you do it your way. This is where you're going to go if you do it my way, and this is what's going to happen to you if you do it your way. And it's just so cut and dry. And the, the, the disciples responded, because did you notice it's back to disciples? They are learning this. They are learning these verses so that they can go out and be so sure. So they asked the question, where, where, Lord? And he replied, and oh, what a way to end a chapter as much as we'd just love a nice little warm, fuzzy ending. It couldn't be worse. Where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Just like the dog looking the source, he wants to make sure we see. And there again, it's Revelation 19, after the second coming of Christ. I can just visualize that white horse and Jesus coming and the multitudes following. And there's all the, the people, the unbelievers, ready with all their military might, thinking they don't even have one bit of equipment. We're going to blow them out of the sky. Can't you tell I have boys? <laughs> I, I just love these dramatic stories, but I don't think I'm, I'm dramatizing too much because I know that they're going to be looking at, at the multitudes and Jesus with no ammunition, and they're going to think, this is going to be such an easy one. And Jesus just opens up his mouth, and they all drop dead. The sword, the word, comes right out of his mouth, and they all drop dead. And I still love this part where... Jesus tells John, hey, go tell the birds they're going to have a feast like none other. He is making sure we see the picture. You don't want this? You don't think it's a big deal? You don't think it's that important? You think that, that achieving all your earthly gains is where it's at? Well, how would you like to think that a vulture is picking at your flesh? I mean, just he says, I want you to see that visual. But you can have the alternative, and that's what I want to leave you with. The alternative is, no, no vulture is going to be eating your flesh. You're going to be basking in the presence of your Savior. That's the choice. Oh, man, is his name wonderful. Oh, my word, is his grace sufficient. And have you thanked him lately? Have you wanted and desired to serve him, not needing a thing, but just the opportunity because he's worth it? And are you living every minute knowing that you don't have to carry these shackles? You don't have to carry this guilt. You don't have to carry this shame. You don't have to carry an unforgiving spirit. You can release it to him and you can live free from the fear of tomorrow, from the guilt of your past. Praise God. Heavenly Father, what a lesson. Oh, I'm so glad you are so blunt sometimes and that you are even crude sometimes. That we, that we see reality. We see, we see the truth. And we're not afraid. We don't shy away from it. We don't shirk around the corner. We took this chapter line by line, word for word, and you could just see the theme that Luke wanted us to see. Father, it may be true that we came in here disciples. We came in here. We needed to learn this. But now we leave apostles because we are sent out to take what we've learned. Because people are watching. They're listening. They're expecting. We wear your name. 
Lord, last week, last week we were talking about someone coming up to us in glory and tapping us on their shoulder. And they start singing, thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you. And now this week, Jesus makes sure we know that if, if we aren't careful, if we don't watch our lives, we could cause someone's decision to be just the opposite. So thank you, Lord, that you teach us that we have to look at this straight in the face and make the most of our days, our minutes. And yes, this is a lot of pressure. Yes, it is hard to forgive. But all we have to do is go to the cross and then nothing is impossible. So thank you for teaching us all this. You are so wonderful. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.